despite COVID, I've had the opportunity to be able to to have a few cups of coffee with people and and the uh, the uh, odd breakfast here and there outside, of course. And uh, it's been interesting reintegrating into society after uh, all the time off and wearing masks, not wearing masks. Where do you wear masks? How do we do this thing? So it's been a real uh, process of re-educating and trying to get back into things. But it's been great to start meeting again, face-to-face. Zoom is fine as a placeholder, but uh, nothing like face-to-face. So for the folks that are here today, it's great to see you. I had a coffee with a friend uh, who used to be a regular member here, and he moved out uh, out of the area, and so we don't get to see each other very much, but he was back in the area, so it was great. We got to sit down and have coffee outside at a coffee shop right next to the train tracks in San Juan, just this great spot. And he made the comment that it's really hard to be a Christian. And I thought that was an interesting comment that he would make. He's, he's, he's older, he's, he's uh, late 60s, and uh, has been a committed Christian for, for decades. And he makes this comment that it's really hard to be a Christian. Now, in our conversations over the last few years especially, uh, he's been struggling with certain theological issues and doctrinal issues and all of that. And so I knew that that was in there, but I asked him the question, why would you say that it's so hard to be a Christian? And he answered kind of two different ways. The first was, you know, it's really hard to just stay true to the moral standards to the ethical standards, to the theological belief system, to the doctrine of the church. He says, that's just just been really hard for me to try to keep all that in tow. And he said, the other thing is, is that there's so much pushback to being a Christian right now in our society. You know, there's there's a a certain bias against Christianity right now that is prevalent in our society, and especially in the media. You know, he's active on social media, so he certainly sees it there. And so he said, it's just hard to be a Christian when everything seems to be pushing in the other direction. And I was thinking about that. Is it really hard to be a Christian? I want to take the second thing he said first. Now, it may not be fair that Christians are kind of being singled out in our culture right now and the the, the pushback that's happening right now. But there are reasons for that, and we need to be aware of those reasons, because if we miss them, we're going to miss the reasons that there is this situation that we find ourselves here in, here in this time and place in our country. And there, there are historical reasons, and there are political reasons. The history of Christianity is <laughs> very spotted. And after the 4th century, the beginning of the 4th century, When Christianity was aligned with Roman power under Constantine and by the end of that century became the state religion of Rome, it absolutely became a completely different animal, certainly than Jesus instituted. But even for the first 200 years and the first generations of followers after Jesus, after Christianity became aligned with the Roman Empire, everything changed. You know, it's interesting that it was at that moment that the monastic movement in Christian tradition began. The church desert fathers and mothers fled their cities, their villages, their towns, in especially the eastern Mediterranean basin, for the deserts of Judea, of Egypt, to get away from the fact that their church had been co-opted and was no longer recognizable to them. It could no longer nurture them and feed them as they were understanding it. And they had to flee out into the wilderness to be alone, to find solitude, to find silence in order to reconnect with what? It meant for them to be a Christian. 
But once Christianity was aligned with the might of the Roman Empire, it became an institution, an imperial institution like any other. And it flattened all opposition. It stated its orthodox beliefs, and it, can, it declared everything else heresy. It burned books, it exiled, it killed, it did whatever it needed to do to maintain the supremacy of that orthodox belief. And of course, that carried through from the Eastern Mediterranean into Europe, which became a Christian continent and a collection of Christian kingdoms. But the Pope in Rome actually had power over those kings and told those kings what to do. And when you fast forward to the colonial period of white Europeans colonializing, colonializing, yes, the rest of the world, and all of the abuses and all of the atrocities that went on through that period, you can understand the roots of how Christianity has been connected with European white oppression, has been connected with many of the things that we are dealing with right now in our streets. And that's unfortunate, of course, but it's part of our history. And we need to embrace that history fully if we're going to be able to rise above it, to not be doomed to repeat it, you know, one of the things that's of a danger right now in our country is the erasing of our history. We want to erase the parts that we don't agree with, but the thing is, is that we need to know what those were, and we need to embrace them, as well as embrace the things that we can be proud of, the virtuous parts of our heritage. We need it all. We need the shadow side and the light side. We need it together so that we can understand. And if we as Christians don't know our history and don't know why there is such resentment, then we misunderstand. And we won't be able to fully appreciate what's going on or have the kind of dialogue that's meaningful. Of course, especially evangelical Christianity in this country has aligned itself as the religious right. And so it is obviously and immediately going to be the enemy of the left, which is predominant in our media. And so we see that crunch as well. Once Christianity became political, once it became a part of the historical movements of nations, it changed. And so we have to recognize that and recognize what is going on here. The beliefs and the doctrines obviously are not politically correct on many of the social issues as well, and so that creates another rift. But is any of this what is meant to be a Christian? Is it central to Jesus' teaching? What about those moral and theological and doctrinal issues? Are they as hard to deal with as we think they are, as my friend thought they were? It's so important to go back to Jesus and find out what did Jesus really say? What did he teach us? Take a look at Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This idea of a yoke, I mean, you know what a yoke is, right? You put it on the oxen, it's kind of that ring sort of thing. You put it on, and then you attach all the lines to it, and, and this is how the, the oxen pulls the cart or pulls the plow or pulls whatever. And it was through the yoke that the farmer, the driver, was able to direct the oxen, which was the largest domestic animal known in the Middle East. Now, the rabbis used the yoke as a metaphor for themselves, for the teaching, 
To be under the yoke of a rabbi, of a teacher, was to be one who was submitted to his teaching, submitted to that school of thought, and ultimately submitted to the law. There was the understanding of being under the yoke of a certain teacher, under the yoke of the law, even under the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a well-known phrase that Jesus is using here. And so look how he puts this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will have rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You cannot read the New Testament Gospels without seeing the constant conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his time. Why? Because what they had done was to create this ridiculously complex and burdensome yoke and then thrust it upon the people. Besides the 613 written laws that they extracted from the Torah, they added thousands of unwritten laws. They called it their traditions, the oral tradition. All of those laws that were so complex, nobody could understand them. It was a source of their power because they were the lawyers of the law and people had to come to them. That yoke was so heavy, so burdensome, Jesus was constantly in conflict with it, trying to show the people that it wasn't just through the blind obedience or following of those laws that anything really happened. And he went out of his way to show the people that they had to be able to, had to break those. They had to break down their dependence on them. And he broke them, not the written laws, but the oral laws at every chance. Read every Sabbath controversy and you'll see Jesus at work doing what he does. The Pharisees' yoke was ridiculously complex. Jesus is trying to simplify it. He's making it easy. He's taking the burden off of us. And if it doesn't feel that way, if it still feels like it's hard, if it still feels like it's really heavy, it's only that way because we have added the complexity back in that Jesus was so trying to take out. Now, I have a coffee with another friend, and he's, he's going through a tough time right now. His business has been kind of derailed um, by... Uh, COVID and by the shutdown, and it's having a domino effect on, on his business and now his personal life, his home, finances, everything else. And he made the comment that he goes, you know, I, I know everything is relative, but I feel a little bit like Job here. Can anybody relate? <laughs> feel like Job. It seems like everything that could go wrong is going wrong, and we're just getting pounded down more and more. And he said he just had this desire for he and his wife to just move away find a patch of land someplace and put one of those tiny homes on it. You know, those six or 700 square foot homes, just put a tiny home on it and just get away from everything and everybody. Either that or he said, even maybe we just get in a van and we just drive and we just find a place that looks nice and stop there. You know, have you ever felt that way? <laughs> just, you just want to check out. How does it stop the world? I want to get off. It's all this complexity, this constant flow, you know, torrential output of details and things you have to handle. And now, you know, everything that's going on right now, adding all these restrictions, all these unknowns, all of these uncertainties, and all of these crises to our lives. Yeah, I totally can understand how he longed for more simplicity. Just to turn down, to slow down, to clear out. I think we need to pay attention to that longing, to that desire. I think 
that that is a sacred call to action for all of us. The call for simplicity. The call to turn it down, to clear it out. That doesn't mean that we move away. It doesn't mean that we go build a tiny house on a patch of land someplace. But it does mean that in starting interiorly, we begin the process of that simplification, clearing it out, getting back to the light yoke, the easy burden of Jesus, and not what has happened to our church, to our society, to our lives. We need to start someplace. I think this is a sacred call, and it's getting louder, especially as things get crazier. Because when you look at Jesus, it's absolutely astonishing how simple he is. Go back and read the red letters and see how absolutely simple he is and his teaching is. How he divested himself of all of the trappings of of business and family and was single-mindedly, itinerantly, moving through the landscape, talking to his people, trying to turn their heart lights on, modeling first what it looked like in a pure form, but then encouraging the people to apply it to their lives as they were living it, to apply in place that kind of simplicity, that kind of clearing out. Jesus is always breaking down the complexity of doctrine, always breaking down the complexity of the law, or he's breaking unnecessary and complex rules and lightening the burden, always. Take a look at Matthew 22, start in verse 36. When he is questioned by those Pharisees, by those religious leaders, teacher, which commandment of the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. And see, there's another Hebrew idiom there, the law and the prophets. The Hebrew Bible, which we would consider the Old Testament, the Jews call the Tanakh. It's actually, everything is, is uh, consonants in uh, Hebrew. So it's just T-N-K in our language, in, in our alphabet. It stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. It's the Torah, the law, the first five books, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings, T-N-K. The law and the prophets was the code for all of the scripture, all of the written law, all of the written body of the sacred scripture of the Jews. Jesus is saying everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we look at as our foundation simply depends on these two. Love God, love each other. That's it. Do that, and all the rest is commentary. I love that. Everything else is commentary on these two. It's hard to get any more simple than that. He continues at Mark 10. He doesn't continue, but at Mark 10, verse 17. This is a scene that I keep coming back to because it is so central. For those of us who have questions, for those of us who believe that Christianity is difficult, for those of us who are struggling with either law or doctrine or, or theology, if we can come back to this, because here is a scene in which a young man is asking Jesus that very question. 
I mean, if you had the opportunity to walk up to Jesus, what is the question that you would ask? I think this would probably be it or some variation of this. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, does it get it any, any more basic than that? Does it get any more on point than that? Whatever you're feeling, if you're feeling like something's missing, like he obviously was, if you're feeling like this is really hard and you don't know if you're doing it right, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's so emotional. It's so heartfelt. It's so right there. Jesus' answer is so interesting. He says to him, why do you call me good? He said, good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus never answers a question directly anyway. You know that. It's an Eastern teaching method. He always is going to answer a question with a question, or he's going to just tell a story or a parable. He's going to try to get the questioner off the bead of where they think they're going and cause them to make that quantum leap into where they really need to be. But this one is really interesting. Good teacher, what must I do? Why do you call me good? There is none good except God above the Father. See, what we're going to find out about this young man And we can read the next line. He says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Why? Because he knew that he was sincere. He knew that he had been fastidious about his following of the law. But he says to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Good teacher, what must I do? Why do you call me good? There's none but Father who is good. What is he doing? The young man was a follower. The young man had been enculturated in a way that all he had to do, there's some kind of formula, if he just followed it, he would get where he needed to go. But he still, to his credit, knows that something is missing. Something is still lacking. And he comes to Jesus with this. What Jesus is trying to do is to get him to not just trade one standard to follow with another standard to follow. Do you see what's going on here? He would treat Jesus exactly the way he was treating the Pharisees and everything else about his culture. If Jesus didn't try to break the connection right then and there and say, there is none good But the Father, don't just follow me slavishly the way you are following anyone else. This is your journey and your journey alone. And if you don't connect directly with your God, you are not going to fill that missing piece. It is not going to happen. This is so critical for us to understand. And what is the thing that he tells him to do? Simplify. Clear it out. Empty it out. Now, we hear this and say, am I supposed to sell everything I have in order to follow Jesus? No. Remember, we can apply Jesus' teaching in place to our lives as they are. And that's what he's asking him to do. Let go of the attachment that you have to these things. Let go of the personal identification that you have with all your possessions. Because your possessions right now possess you. Can you break that connection? And, of course, the last line is, 
that he was saddened at these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Can we do this? The simplification is absolutely essential. That's where Jesus is trying to get us. Complexity is never an end in itself. It's a necessary transition through life to move from simplicity to complexity. But we must find simplicity again on the other side of the complexity. The trouble with the Pharisees were is they built this complex system. It became the source of their power, and then they just hunkered down there. And they idolized the complexity. But the complexity is only the thing that we need to get through to get to the other side. I love to use a music analogy, obviously. The simplicity is the first time you hear music, you just hear vibrations in the air, and you love those vibrations so much that everything in you wants to make them yourself, right? That's why you start playing the guitar. What does it mean to actually learn to play guitar? <laughs> you got to break it down into these complex systems, you know? You got to learn your instrument. You got to know how it works. You got to know how you address the instrument. It becomes this complex interplay between trying to understand and the muscle memory that needs to happen. And if you're really going to take it further, then you need to know something about music theory. And you got to break all that down and understand the, the, the scales and the notes and how everything. And it gets to be this world of complexity. And if you stay there, you may become a very technically good musician. But are you really creating art? Not until all of that is moved past and it all just becomes vibrations in the air, a direct connection from what you hear in your head to what is now vibrating in the air for others to hear, and you are present to that just as the audience is present to that, the simplicity of that again, to move through the complexity to the simplicity again, from simplicity to complexity, that's, the, travel, that's the, the, the journey each one of us takes. When we are infants, what's more simple than that, right? We don't even know we're naked. We're running down around like the dogs and the birds, you know, in the birthday suit. We're perfectly happy to do that. Or put some clothes on me. I don't care. You know, there is no concept of yesterday or tomorrow. It's completely just oneness, simple. And then we hit the age of reason, and it starts getting complex. And then we become adults, and we've now got jobs and mortgages and families, and it gets really complex. The wisdom of old age, or the wisdom at least of the second half of life, is to have moved past that complexity and find the simplicity on the other side, to realize that the truth that we seek and the, and the fulfillment and the purpose that we're here for is not all of that detail and all that complexity out there. It's a simplicity of heart that can deal with that complexity in a simple way. To move from simplicity through the complexity and back is what Jesus is urging us at every single turn. Think of the way that he phrases all of those crazy sayings of his. You want to find your life, you have to lose it. You want to sit at the head of the table, you sit at the foot of the table. Pick up your cross daily. Follow me. Be willing to die daily to all of this stuff, all of this complexity. If you can clear out the attachment, the personal identification with everything that you possess, everything that possesses you, that 
is kingdom. That is the quality of life that we can have. But see, this is where Christianity does get hard, does get difficult. It's not about the rules that are difficult. It's about giving up the rules that is difficult. To let go of the security blanket, to let go of all of the distractions, all the things that we think are that formula to salvation, to realize that that's not it. They are there to funnel us into an experience, a direct experience, a simple and pure experience of the presence of our God. But to empty out first so that we can be refilled, so that we can be born again, so that we can be transformed, that's the hard part. And we all miss this. In fact, we don't even really want to talk about it. I mentioned last week that I was annoyed at a radio show host that I heard who was talking about how we can cope and get through all of the crises that we're facing right now from COVID to civil unrest. And she had the, the, this, this glib, sing-song kind of voice. And, you know, oh, you know, Pollyanna comes to mind. Platitude comes to mind. You know, Hallmark greeting card <laughs> comes to mind. Where she had a, a, a word. I missed the word, but she just had an acronym. And she was just running through all of these words like resilience and endurance and caring and mindfulness and things that we should do. And then when we do, you know, we're going to be happy again. But it wasn't rooted in the real pain that we are going through or feeling. It wasn't starting where we really are. It was starting someplace in this abstract spot. And so it wasn't going to, even though it was true, everything she said was absolutely true. It was absolutely not helpful either. And I still wanted to slap her. Because that just gets annoying. You're not addressing what is really going on here. And see, that's it. That's the problem that we have. This is how, why it is so hard for us. It, if we don't recognize that there is going to be pain involved in the clearing out process, there's going to be fear and disturbance involved when we let go of the things that we have been attached to for decades, possibly. The emptying out, the descent into that place of discomfort, then we're never going to be able to really take this journey any more than if we don't embrace the shadow side of our history like we were talking about before. We need to understand that it is both at the same time. Jesus never lets go of trying to convey this need for simplicity and for the emptying out. This is what the cross is really all about. Rather than just appeasing an angry God, it's about the ultimate emptying out, the giving away, the simplifying the descent before the ascent on the other side. And this is a primary theme in all of Scripture. If you really want to understand Jesus, you're going to have to understand this, that there is this descent into simplicity that precedes coming up the other side. But it's pervasive throughout Scripture. It's not just Jesus that talks about this. I love the story of Moses and Moses' life. Did you know that Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40? 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. He lived 120 years in the Old Testament. Now, the number 40 is used here symbolically. When it's used this way, it always means a time of trial, testing, or initiation into a rebirth. And so Moses' first 40 years of life as the prince of Egypt, you all know the story. He was born a Hebrew, 
but the Hebrew males were being killed, and so his mother floats him down the Nile in a basket and is picked up by the uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She raises him. The Pharaoh accepts him as an adopted grandson. He grows up as a prince of Egypt. Could there be anything more complex than that, being at the seat of power in one of the great civilizations of the ancient world? With all the luxury, all the noise, all the distractions, all the parties, you can imagine everything that was going on in his life up to that point. But there's something in him that is drawing him toward his Hebrew people. And when he sees that guard beating the Hebrew slave, he moves in to protect the slave and kills the guard, and that begins his second 40. He's sent into exile at that point, into the backwater of the Midian. He connects with Jethro through Zipporah, his wife, who becomes his wife. And what does he do there? He becomes a shepherd. And his next 40 years are spent in the wilderness, months at a time, weeks at a time, alone with his sheep. That does something to you. 40 years, a second full lifetime as a shepherd before he finally stumbles upon the burning bush that calls him to the last 40 years of his life, leading his people. But the importance of this story is that without that second 40, without that descent into the wilderness, without that period of clearing out, there wouldn't have been Probably a burning bush, but certainly not 40 years of leading his people. I wanted to read you a piece by uh, a rabbi who uh, is in, lives in Israel, but he talks about this in terms of a shepherd consciousness. And, and just listen to this, because I think hopefully it'll bring it close uh, or in, into real clarity. He writes, Our ancestors were shepherds. The Torah tells us that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rachel, and King David all herded goats and sheep. Did you know that? Think of that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rachel, David, they're all shepherds or goat herders. Joseph also worked as a shepherd alongside his brothers. The greatest of our early Jewish leaders chose this profession, a livelihood scorned by surrounding cultures. Why did so many of the original leaders of the Jewish people choose to become shepherds? Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel, explains that the advantage of shepherding might be found in the secluded lifestyle of the shepherd. While engaged with flocks, ambling through the hills and valleys, the shepherd is cut off from the noisy distractions of society, thus enabling ample time for inner reflection. Additionally, the labor is not intensive. Unlike farming, shepherding does not require one to exert a great deal of energy in mundane matters. Nevertheless, the shepherd is concerned with the actual physical needs of the flock. A shepherd does not live in an ivory tower immersed in artificial philosophies, detached from life. Rather, the shepherd is constantly engaged with the real world, seeking water, shade, and good fodder for animals. The thoughts and musings of the shepherd may be sublime and lofty, but they cannot take the shepherd away from the task at hand, a balance between the interior and the exterior, between the abstract and the concrete. What is the value of seclusion and solitude? Is the desire for solitude a positive trait? How do we balance reclusive behavior with the greater ideals of refining humanity and elevating the universe? In other words, is the ideal to connect to the world or disconnect? 
In order to cultivate one's own greatness, it is necessary to develop a deep soul awareness. This is best accomplished through silence and isolation. When one truly engages in such a practice, it will inevitably have a positive influence both in one's own life and also on one's surroundings. The intent of this withdrawal is ultimately to have a positive impact on the larger world. And not for mere personal spiritual fulfillment. The goal is not to engage in a personal spiritual path that is dissociated from the rest of the world. Rather, the aspiration is the opposite. The solitude of the shepherd ultimately enables him to reconnect and even provide for the larger world on a spiritual level. The silence of the shepherd is not just the absence of speech. It is a sublime language of silence flowing from an outpouring of the soul, a vehicle of ruach hakodesh, or divine inspiration. The depths of the soul demand silence. Silence is full of life, revealing treasures from the beauty of wisdom. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov teaches that a Jew should spend one hour a day in hit bodedut. Have you heard that word before? Hit bodedut, or reflective prayer. This means that every Jewish person should set aside a significant period of time to simply be with God, not to pray formally, study, or engage in mitzvah, rather to simply be. It can include mundane conversation with God or soul-wrenching self-analysis. In this sacred time, we can come to taste the divine encounter that our forefathers taught us through their example as shepherds. This one hour of being with God, or, or simply being, will come to inform how we are and what we do in the world. When we are too caught up in experiencing the world without shepherd consciousness, we tend to make decisions from our own narrow, get-ahead reality. When we focus too much on doing without making time for being, that is to say, communing with the divine, we automatically make decisions that transform the earth in negative ways. Remember a few weeks ago we were talking about Paul? Why didn't Paul advocate for social justice? Why did he say just obey the government that du jour, the one that is in power right now because it was instituted by God? Why did he say if you're a slave, stay a slave? If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. Why would he say such things? Why wouldn't he be advocating for social justice and social change? And we said because he believed that the time was short and all the time that was there for was for the people to fight their interior revolution, not the exterior revolution. But if he knew that there were more time, 2,000 years and counting before Jesus comes back, then he would have said the same thing. Fight the interior revolution first. Because if you don't do that and you just move to the exterior one, you will do it in a way that will have negative results. You will create more problems than you solve because you're not coming from this place of deep connection, this place of deep soul awareness. This is what the shepherd consciousness does. This is why it was critical for Moses to have that second 40 years, that second lifetime, to develop his shepherd consciousness. He finishes with this, we do not each need to become shepherds to learn the lesson of shepherd consciousness, a simple commitment to withdraw from the world for brief periods and engage the more spiritual realms will provide us with a broader perspective on our own lives and the decisions we make. We need to regain the inner spiritual balance and clarity of our ancestors. 
The truth of the matter is that if Moses had not developed his spiritual consciousness, it is quite likely that he never would have stopped at the burning bush. Burning bushes aren't necessarily miraculous in the desert. There are several species that are highly combustible, especially in hot weather. And he may have seen burning bushes from time to time in 40 years walking through the desert wilderness. But there was something different about this bush. And because he had learned to slow down, to be one with the land and the animals that he led, he noticed this bush was burning but was not being consumed. I need to step aside and take a look at this, he says to himself. That was the preparation for the encounter with God that changed the history of his people. If only our leaders would do this, to start interiorly first before they move to exercise power exteriorly, how different would our world be? Moses had to learn simplicity. He had to be emptied of distraction in order to be able to hear God's voice to be the uncorruptible leader that he was who changed the history of his people. This is the message that Jesus is trying to get across to us. This is the sacred call that we are hearing, I think, ourselves right now. And to try to put a finer point on this as we bring this to a close, sometimes it's easier for us to hear a message from a different tradition than from our own because we've been so familiarized with the way our scriptures talk about this, sometimes another scripture, another tradition can hit it right on the head. If you haven't heard of or studied Taoism at all, it is a a Chinese, mostly a philosophy more than a religion, although it's kind of got the, the bits of both. But Tao in Chinese means way in almost exactly the same way that Jesus used way. Kamiri Urha, Urha in Aramaic means way. And there are so many similarities between the philosophy of Taoism and the teachings of Jesus that I love to be able to move back and forth because we can hear things from Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu sometimes in ways that just illuminate what Jesus is trying to say. From the Tao Te Ching, which was Lao Tzu's seminal work, he says this, manifest plainness. Embrace simplicity. Put others first. Desire little. Manifest plainness. Embrace simplicity. Put others first. And desire little. There is what is called the three treasures of Taoism. And they are compassion, simplicity, and humility. Contrast that with Micah 6.8 that Frank read a few weeks ago. Right? Act justly, love kindness, walk humbly with your Lord. We're talking about the same things here. There's a story that comes out of of, uh, Taoism. Wait, wait, before I get to that, I want to just point out, the word for simplicity, embrace simplicity, it's a Chinese character. You know what that character literally means if you just read it literally? It means uncarved wood. Do you love that? I love that. It's a reminder that ancient languages are really kind of natural metaphors for concrete experiences. You can imagine the ancient 
looking at uncarved wood and understanding the simplicity of it, especially when contrasted with the finished piece that is carved. And uncarved wood becomes a me- the metaphor for simplicity itself. The, the Hebrew and Aramaic work exactly the same way. They start with a concrete com- concept, and then they move into the abstract. But it's always attached to the concrete. This idea of uncarved wood, this idea of the simplicity of something that hasn't been worked yet, hasn't been driven to some sort of level of detail, I think is just absolutely beautiful. A new disciple, in this story from Taoism, a new disciple meets his master for the first time. He's very excited, and he asks, how do you practice Tao, sir? And the master says, when you are hungry, eat. When you are tired, sleep. The answer is astonishingly, astonishingly simple to the disciple, as he expecting something much more complex, right? Isn't that what everyone does anyway, sir, he asks. No, says the master. Most people feed themselves with thousands of desires when they eat and dream of thousands of designs when they sleep. Pondering deep, the disciple nods his head. (laughs) Two stories from two different traditions telling the same story. Two young men going to their master and asking the seminal question, the essential question, how do I practice Tao? Understand that Tao to the Chinese is the movement of life. It's the movement of everything and everything in it. And you practice Tao by flowing with that movement. We would say that the Spirit is always moving, blowing through our lives. And we, if we move with the flow of the Spirit, if we allow ourselves to be blown by the Spirit, we don't know where it comes from, we don't know where it's going, but we are now in kingdom. We are now moving. That's the way the Taoist understood it. And the disciple is asking, how do I do this? The answer is so simple. But it requires everything of the student, doesn't it? He has to clear out, empty out everything that he thought it meant. The young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, it's going to require everything of you. You've done beautifully following the rules and everything you thought you knew and all that complexity for as far as it's taken you. But the next step is going to be to let all of that go, to sell it all, to become simple again, to become one with a beginner's mind again. Can you do that? He wasn't ready. Apparently, this student was. We don't really know for sure. But that's it. That's what's going on. And one little bit here, eternal life. When we think of eternal life, we think of heaven. We think of life that will go on forever. But in the original Aramaic, Hayyad Alma, translated as eternal life, we need to understand that Alma means both eternal and it also is the word for the world at the same time. This is one of those instances of that natural metaphor. Alma was used to describe the experience of life on this planet, living life in this world, the endless generation of new diversity, new things being generated constantly, constant change, constant life, constant surprises. That age, that generation was what Alma means, and then it was applied to eternity. 
because eternity to the Jews is not something out there, a long line of time, but the endless experience of new generation, new diversity, new life. So eternal life is not life that goes on eternally. It's life that is eternally new and alive and surprising and diverse. How do I gain this life? How do I gain the experience of this life, he's asking. How do I practice moving through the way? Clear it out. Clear out everything that would distract you, everything that would block you, everything that you're clinging to, everything that you've identified with as your security, as your control point. We hang on to our complexity because we think we have control over it. That's it. Is it hard to be a Christian? Yeah, I suppose it is. But only mostly to the extent that Christianity has departed from Jesus' simplicity. It's up to us, each one of us, even if it's just in our own lives or in our own homes or in our own community, to bring Christianity back to the simplicity with which it started, to bring it back literally to Jesus. Is it hard to follow Jesus? Well, it's hard to prepare to follow, especially if we're wealthy. And every one of us in this society is wealthy to a certain extent, especially if we're complex. And every single one of us is complex to a certain extent. It will be hard for us to prepare because it will be hard for us to let go. But once we do, once we become simplified, then the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Finally, look at Jesus speaking at John 13, starting in verse 34. This is the Last Supper. These are his last words, among his last words to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's it. That's the whole teaching compressed in one last word to his disciples. The simplicity of just loving one another. There is no other litmus test for being a Christian. That's it. Can you love one another? Have you gone through the process of letting go of everything that possesses you in such a way that would keep you from being able to love each other the way Jesus loves us. How could we miss this? As we have focused on all this complexity, as we focus on all of these points that become the be-all and end-all of our faith and the exclusive nature of what we believe in our faith, how could we miss what Jesus is saying right here? How could the church miss it for 2,000 years? How could we enshrine the complexity instead of just embracing the simplicity of what Jesus is telling us because it's so hard to let go of the imagined control that we have in the complexity. Letting go means letting go of our imagined control, and that's frightening. But it's the only way to be able to see a burning bush when it appears right in front of us. It's only hard to be a Christian a follower of Jesus, or even 
a U.S. citizen for that matter, to the extent that we're holding on to complexity. Let go. Find ways to chip away at the complexity in your life. Find things that you can start to let go, to clear out. Just go clean the garage if that's the best you can do, but start somewhere. But realize this is the mandate that Jesus is giving us to clear out the complexity, to more and more see our life as just that simple and central connection point to find the simplicity beyond the complexity and be able to love each other as Jesus loved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a simple God. Thank you for being an unassuming God. Thank you for being a humble God, a vulnerable God, a transparent God, a God who shows us what it looks like to love absolutely, shows us what it looks like to connect intimately. Thank you for being the kind of God that actually lives the life that you encourage us to live as well. We need your help here, Father. This is hard for us to do. You know how hard it is. You know what we need before we ask it, but we're going to ask it anyway. We need help with the fear that's involved in letting go the imagined control that we have over our things, even if those things are just our thoughts. Help us to find small ways that we can begin the process that will take us to more and more taking the larger steps because what we want is to find that eternal life in you, that life that is eternally new and alive and meaningful and purposeful right here, right now. Thank you for giving us everything we need, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.